Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Beer Ladies podcast. I'm your host, Christina, and I am joined with my co-host, Lisa, and a very special guest um, who I will get uh, introduced to you in a little bit. Um, But first, just a reminder that um, you can follow us on our socials, so at Beer Ladies Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Mastodon. And um, if you really like what you hear, uh, feel free to uh, buy us a coffee. Um, every every coffee that we get really, really helps the running of the podcast. So we do so much appreciate you. And I just wanted to say we did just do our analytics and we found out that we have a lot of listeners from the U.S. So I just wanted to give our U.S. listeners a shout out. Um, oh we were a little bit surprised. You are our number one fan. So thank you so much for all the love. And with that in mind, I can kick off the episode. So I want to start with what are we all drinking? But first, I'm going to introduce our podcast guest. So we are joined today with, by Teresa McCullough of the Smithsonian. And we cannot wait to learn all about her journey into becoming a beer historian. But first, Teresa, what are you drinking? So I am drinking um, something interesting and unique, and I will um, I'll give you a peek, but it is called Victory Garden Blonde Session Ale, and this is a home-brewed beer, not, not by myself, but um, mm-hmm. an acquaintance, and it is the beer is brewed with the Cascade hops that are grown in the Victory Garden at the National Museum of American History, and wow. each fall, I help the horticulturalists at Smithsonian Gardens harvest the hops. It's mostly Cascade and some nugget hops, about 10 pounds total. And we donate the hops to local home brewers and ask them to, to make something good. So each year home brewers come up with something different. And so, um, so this beer of unknown ABV, but I was promised it's a <laughs> low alcohol, easy drinking. It's a, a blonde session ale. So brewed with those hops and then with German ale and, uh, and Kolsch yeast. And so it's very, it's very refreshing on uh, this spring day here in Washington, DC. Lovely. Ooh, what a cool idea. I love that. Yeah. Lisa, what are you drinking? Uh, so I have, I've also gone in a sessionable direction. I have the uh, Kinniger Brewers at Play number 29. Uh, so they're, uh, this is their session IPA, uh, 4%, and it's got some really cute art. It's hard to see 
here, but they've got all the, the little bunnies hopping around uh, the kegging and bottling line. Um, and it says, uh, this particular one is a simple and refreshing session IPA, perfectly pitched to get the brewing team at K2 limbered up for their 2023 season. So I guess they've been opening that second um, production mm -hmm. facility up there. So for our American listeners, because we're excited, there are so many of you, they're up in Donegal. There's there's no good way to get to them, but we would love to go up and tour at some point. Uh, well, there's no good way to get to them without a car, but someday, someday we have, uh, we'll have some kind of trip there. But uh, yeah, the, uh, the Brewers at Play series is where they just do something a bit different from their core lines. And this is nice. It's very clean. It's very refreshing. Um, still has a nice bit of uh, hop character there to it, but it's it's definitely good for a school night or school afternoon in your case, Teresa. So, right, right. <laughs> so um, I swear to our listeners, we did not plan this, but we are all drinking <laughs> session uh, session beers. So I have a session IPA here from Dot Brew, um, also an Irish brewery. If you're not familiar, so this is three point two percent. It's part of their spinoff series, and I don't think I've really had any beer from Dot Brew that I haven't liked. So I'm really looking forward to this. So this is. Easy drinking East Coast style, brewed with barley, flaked, and malted oats. I'm really pumped for this one, actually, um, because I do love a nice uh, session beer in the, especially the nice weather. Like this just mm. kind of sounded exactly like what I want to drink. So I am excited to be enjoying that on our uh, podcast episode today. So I guess we can kick off the interview. Um, Teresa, you have such an interesting background when I was um, doing some some research for the, the for the interview. And I just wondered if you could kind of talk a little bit about how you came into beer history and sort of your educational background and, and some of the work that you've done prior to to doing that. Sure. It's um, it's been a, a bit of a winding and unintended path to get where I am, but uh, it's been fun the whole way. So um, I, I'm originally not a historian. I am um, a linguist. I studied romance languages as an undergraduate, um, French, Spanish, and Italian. And um, I think, you know, I think in part growing up and starting one of those languages earlier, it made me interested in food and in cooking. And I should also say that I grew up with beer in the home because my dad was a home brewer. And so um, one of my earliest memories of beer when I was seven or eight was of him home brewing in our kitchen. And I found that very, um, I, I did not like the, the smells of, of, <laughs> of the, the pot at the time. Um, you know, I'd run outside to play, but I remember him helping us, uh, asking us to help him cap, cap his bottles. And um, just also this understanding that there was such a thing as good beer and that good beer was very important to have around. And at the time, so say, you know, that was around 1990, that meant anything brewed by Anchor Brewing Company, Sierra Nevada, um, Boston Beer, Sam Adams. Um, and so, so yeah, there was this understanding. He was from Milwaukee, large family of eight kids and, um, and just a kind of interest in beer and its role in social gatherings and family gatherings. That was something that was just kind of in, in the atmosphere when I was younger. Um, but uh, after studying these, uh, these romance languages in college, I wanted to put them to use in some way. And so I, um, I was recruited for a job at the Central Intelligence Agency and I was hired to be an Italian and French media analyst. And so it was within a, a unit of the agency that does very unspooky work, meaning that <laughs> they read the news. They just read the world news. And often that news, of course, is in 
many different languages. Um, and so uh, I, I read the Italian newspapers, the French newspapers, and um, my time there was, was interesting. It was um, certainly a very singular place to work, but um, I came to feel pretty quickly after arriving there that it wasn't somewhere where I wanted to stay forever. And um, in part, that was just partly because of, of what the work was and, and what was happening with it, but also because it felt, um, you know, I was sitting in a cubicle without a window anywhere nearby and was just kind of itching to do more creative work. And I had thought when I was finishing college that I, I had this little idea in the back of my mind that I might want to go to cooking school. So I sent away for brochures to different cooking schools and just kind of put that on the back shelf for a little while when I started work. Um, but then, you know, when I, when I got this idea that I might want to move into a different field, um, I thought that it would probably be wise to get some hands-on experience, just volunteer experience, not even paid. And so I sent, uh, this was probably around 2004, 2005, I sent probably 20, 30 letters to different chefs at restaurants in DC. I asked if I could just come and volunteer for an evening a week in their kitchen to kind of see what dinner service felt like and to kind of experience that different style of work, different pace of work. And um, I got a lot of no response and I got a few responses that were very kind and, and said, you know, we just don't have room in our small kitchen for someone else. But then I got one person who said, sure, why don't you come and volunteer just Tuesday evenings, we're not gonna pay you, um, but you know, work the dinner service at this, this little restaurant in Arlington. Um, so I did that for um, for several months and thought, well, this is interesting. This is savory work. This is savory restaurant service, but what about pastry work? And so I started to work another night a week after, this is after my nine to five job, I would drive to this other um, gig. Uh, I worked another night a week for a pastry chef who made wedding cakes. She had a, a professional baking kitchen in her basement. And again, just started me with very simple stuff, kind of um, scaling out ingredients, eventually mixing them, progressing to baking, to understanding when baking was done. Um, and then I still felt like the kind of unexplored facet of, of food work that I still wanted to figure out um, was research and writing related to food. And so um, I started to work another night a week for um, a food historian. Her name is Joan Nathan. She uh, has come to be known primarily for writing the history of Jewish cooking around the world. And she needed um, someone who had expertise with French language sources to help her research the history of Jewish cooking in France. And so um, all of these things convinced me that, yes, I was interested in working in the realm of food and drink. Um, and so I moved on from the CIA to a position with Harvard University Dining Services, um, where I managed a program called the Food Literacy Project. Um, so oversaw the farmers markets that Harvard runs and helped organize things like cooking classes and chef demonstrations. Um, this was kind of during a time when farmers markets and this vocabulary of eating seasonally and locally was becoming better known in the US. Um, it was around 2007 to 2010 and um, still had this last little bug to, to think about how to kind of do, do that work, do that research um, myself. And so um, applied to the American Studies PhD program at Harvard and um, got my degree there and uh, decided to focus on the history of food and drink in New Orleans and wrote my dissertation about that city. And so it was when that um, program was ending that this very strange job ad popped up and, uh, and I decided to apply for it. 
Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I think we, we, would, we would love to read too any, all the stuff about New Orleans because it is so unique and so special and interesting. And oh my goodness, what, what a, a, just a fascinating journey. Wow. Yeah, I mean, what, what haven't you done? It's just <laughs> so cool how you came to, to be in your position um, from the CIA to working in kitchens and pastry and just, it's just fascinating. It's a really cool introduction and shows just how pas passionate you are about food history. Um, Thank you. Which, off of that, now <laughs> about that cool job position and that cool job that you have now, perhaps you can tell our listeners a little bit about what you do. Sure. So I am the curator of a project at the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian Institution, and the project is called the American Brewing History Initiative. And it was started in um, early 2017. So I joined the museum in January 2017. And it was founded as an effort to document and collect the recent past and present of American beer. And so when I joined the museum, I found that we have very rich collections related to 19th century American brewing history. Um, and that might be in the realm of advertisements or uh, even sheet music of, of uh, beer drinking songs, a lot of um, materials related to temperance activism in, in the prohibition era, um, but then really, past the mid 20th century, not a whole lot. And so um, this, this uh, program evolved out of uh, a gift from the Brewers Association, which is uh, the trade group that um, promotes uh, small and independent brewers in the US. And Kim Jordan, who was one of the co-founders of New Belgium Brewing Company, um, she was involved in the Brewers Association and also an advisory group at the museum. She saw what a great job the Smithsonian has done in documenting American food history um, an American winemaking history, but she wanted to see, um, she wanted to encourage the history of beer to be better reflected in the museum collections. Um, and so really when I came in 2017, it was just this idea to, to collect the history of now, to, to think about what's historical about now and to go out and do it. And so it was just, it was this intriguing and challenging and, um, and very exciting blank slate to think about um, what to do and how to, how to go about it. Oh gosh, that's amazing. And, and I guess in that role too, and, and maybe more for those who aren't already kind of in the weeds uh, like we are, but I guess that can be everything from, you know, sort of oral history projects to really going out and consulting with some of those brewers to say how they can be taking care of some of what they have uh, with a view to it being, uh, you know, properly indexed or, or recorded later, but just giving them a couple of uh, sort of starting points, if, if you like, because I know not everyone's going to go off and, you know, invest in the corporate archives, even though I would love them to, but uh, that's right. I would imagine yeah, there's it, a bit of that. Yeah, that's right. It's thinking about history through the lens of objects, of artifacts, um, documents that might pre be preserved in the archive center at the museum. So if, um, if our listeners have done archival research, you know well these um, shelves and shelves of very tidy organized documents from businesses or from individuals who have preserved their letters. Um, maybe it's uh, the his, you know, historical stretch of a particular publication. Those kinds of things can be found in the archive center at the American History Museum. But um, what, what listeners most likely think about, and they would be very correct in, in thinking about this, um, when you think about a museum, you likely think about objects, about things that are on display in exhibitions. Um, and so that has been just, a wonderful um, and intriguing, again, part of this job is to think about if you, if the primary um, intention is not necessarily to 
collect beer? How do you collect the history of this topic um, in a way that could be exhibited that can be valuable for the public now and also public in the future? And I remember on that when we were in the midst of COVID, Teresa, I think we had a talk um, with some of with the Chicago Museum. There was something on there. And I remember you talking about saving COVID things, saving flyers and, and, and things like that, or anything that comes to you can have a beer order or even the packaging. Um, and that was something that struck me because I didn't I hadn't thought about that. So sometimes it's things that maybe are a little bit more unexpected. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, and I think, you know, what what has really struck me too since being in this position is that often the artifacts associated with brewing and with um, packaging your beer or getting your beer to customers or enjoying your beer as a customer, they're often not very monetarily valuable. They're not, you know, something that's a, a, you know, a solid gold piece of some kind of priceless artifact. Rather, it's, you know, it's really what I, I like to call the stuff of everyday life. It's something that, you know, these things that are so they're precious because they are so um, common and so embedded in our routines and our culture and our history, almost to the extent that they kind of slip below our notice. Um, and so, yes, the the idea to collect um, artifacts that might document the industry's experiences of the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement, that, that was really kind of an immediate form of collecting that was even a degree intensified compared to to what I had collected before that. And so, you know, the first round of collecting when I joined in 2017, 2018 was to think, well, you know, if I wanted to kind of start at the beginning of the, the microbrewing movement in the US, uh, which, you know, followed the campaign for real ale, of course, um, in, in the UK, um, you know, I might look to the 1970s or 1980s and collect you know, brewing equipment or, um, you know, kind of first run of labels from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company or you know, a menu board that hung above the bar in Buffalo Bills Brewery, which was a, an early brew pub in, in California. Um, but then when the, the pandemic arrived, um, you know, immediately the museum shut down, just like the rest of the world. There was a, a moratorium on collecting. Everything was really halted, um, you know, within our, our, our the, you know, the, the realm of what we do as, as well as what everyone else was doing. Um, but the museum, museum leaders did invite curators to write collecting plans that would be specific to really documenting what was happening, you know, at that time. And so um, I wrote a plan based on what I thought could be gathered from industry members to, um, to really save the history of this time of how they were changing their tap rooms, how they were changing their business models, how they were, um, you know, evolving in, in terms of how they were communicating with consumers. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate to be able to get some wonderful materials that really help, um, you know, help help save this moment that in some respects is still with us and in other respects has passed. And so um, the one example of, of these kinds of artifacts that came in, um, they it's a small collection of items from Highland Brewing Company in Asheville, North Carolina. It was founded by Oscar Wong, who um, he grew up in Jamaica and came to the US to study engineering at Notre Dame and then much later in life retired to Asheville, North Carolina and founded a brewery and uh, named the brewery for um, the history of Scotch-Irish immigrants in, in Appalachia and then um, started what became the largest brewery in the region uh, and the first in Asheville, which is now um, you know, certainly an epicenter of, of brewing activity in the US. But um, they sent uh, just this wonderful array of items that included um, 
taproom signage that described um, public health measures, um, things like a, a cloth face mask, which are so ubiquitous now, of course, but made with a, a bandana with the Highland Brewing Company logo, a single use paper menu, they transitioned to that. So as in order for customers not to need to share menus with each other, floor sticker and you know, indicating um, social distancing requirements. And, uh, and you know, again, these are just great examples of things that would go in the recycling bin when they're not needed anymore. Many of them have already, but um, you know, I, I asked them to, to save them, to send them. And so now it's this kind of cohesive collection of, of you know, how the experiences in one business and one tap room changed because of what was happening around it. That is so cool. That is so cool. Can you actually talk a little bit more about the oral history projects that you do and how you approach them, um, particularly for, say, people who might be interested in beer history and how how to conduct an oral history interview? Sort of a, a maybe a little bit of a beginner's guide. Sure, of course. Well, and you know, oral oral history is um, it's it's an interview. You sit with someone, uh, you know, ideally across the table. Although during during COVID, I have recorded them on Zoom. And, um, you know, the idea is to uh, really capture the path of someone's life and their career and to ask about um, their background and, uh, you know, things that to, to try to trace the evolution of how they came into their current position. And so um, if I am sitting with someone, I might ask them, um, you know, chart some basic biographical details. So where were they born? Um, you know who was in their family, what was the neighborhood like where they grew up. Uh, I like to ask what they remember eating and drinking when they were young, uh, because often, you know, these kind of um, things emerge that later show up in their kind of, um, you know, proclivity as a brewer or, you know, as somebody interested in, in you know, how things taste. Um, and then what they study. Um, how their study eventually informed where they worked, what their career path was like, and how they came to beer. Um, I often ask about, you know, whether there was a kind of transformational moment that really, you know, turned them on to brewing, to this, you know, to being intrigued by this topic. Um, if there was a, a transformational beer, and, and um, you probably won't be surprised to hear how many times people might mention Anchor Steam beer as this kind mm -hmm. of you know, thing that really um, alerted them to the fact that there was something other than, you know, American light adjunct loggers. Um, and then just the course, you know, the course of their kind of business history, if they are a brewer, and I've spoken with people who are not brewers too. Um, so if they are a brewer, I might ask about um, processes of, of recipe development, branding, um, talking about their attitudes toward growth and expansion, um, you know, what they see as the the future of the American brewing industry, what consumers want now, what they wanted 10 years ago. Um, and so it's really, you know, and I certainly, um, each interview is different, but at the same time, I try to ensure that there's consistency across this body of interviews so that um, a researcher who is looking at more than one can really be able to compare and maybe notice the similarities and differences uh, among them. And so um, I've recorded with, I believe, 95 people so far. Um, Wow. gone to more than 30 places everywhere from Anchorage, Alaska to, you know, the suburbs of Washington, DC, uh, in Maryland. And, um, it is just, it's such a privilege to have the time from these wonderful people who are, um, just, 
you know, they're creative. And I, this is, I always say that um, anybody who makes great beer or who is involved in great beer, it's impossible for them to be boring. Everybody is so um, interesting in different ways and uh, just, you know, intelligent and very kind of just creative about how they think about the world and about business. And so um, it's just, I feel so fortunate to be able to have the time from these wonderful people to, to share their stories. Thank you for sharing. That's so cool. So if there's any budding beer historians out there, that might be a good option for, you know, a way to learn more about your local breweries, to, to sit down with them and record an interview and get that information and indeed collect that information. Like Teresa was saying, grab the flyers, keep through your packaging. You know, you can have your own little collection that maybe some museum might want someday. So I think that's something we can all do, at least collect, <laughs> you know, when, when I remember to do so. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, even, absolutely. You know, if you work with a local historical society or a library, and if, if there is a, you know, if you have the ability to, um, you know, if there's a, a project to, to document a kind of region or locality's brewing history, I mean, that is incredibly valuable because, um, you know, even if I go to a particular city or a place, you know, there's, there's so, I, I cannot... I cannot achieve the depth that, um, you know, someone can if they are really um, much more embedded in a, a place and a region. And so absolutely that it would be just phenomenal to have, a, a, you know, a, a number of those kinds of projects. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think we know we, we keep saying we'd love to see more of that here because that work hasn't really kicked off here, except in, you know, the, the one corporate example where, where, again, that's great. And that's wonderful that that's uh, been, been ongoing for, for decades. But I think uh, certainly we always, uh, you know, would put the word out there. If any Irish brewers just want some advice, we'd be happy to connect people and have a, have a chat. So. And on that, I'm starting to collect um, bottles and cans from breweries that are now defunct. So if anyone has anything like that, you can send it to me. Um, and if anyone wants to get involved with sort of creating some kind of an archive here, uh, let me know. But yeah, so that's really cool. Um, so moving along. So I know Teresa from the Chicago Museum. Um, so if you want to talk about how you got started and your new position there and a bit about what you do. Sure. So the Chicago Museum is this uh, wonderful organization led by Liz Garibay and um, housed hosted in Chicago, but, um, you know, truly with a kind of worldwide purview, I would say. And um, she she's a, a just a wonderful public historian who has done something so unique and totally necessary. Um, you know, I think if you are um, if you are a researcher or if you are a brewer, you might think about different places where you gather with colleagues. And so perhaps, you know, you go to industry conferences or you go to academic conferences. Um, but, you know, what, what about a setting that kind of bridges those kinds of different kinds of worlds and also not, well, brings them together, brings people in conversation with each other. And so, you know, that's, that's completely what Liz has done for beer. I mean, she's really um, with the annual Beer Culture Summit, she's convened this mm -hmm. setting where you have um, professionals in the industry and scholars and people, you know, writers, uh, media personalities, and um, others who are working in all kinds of different places um, and, you know, bringing them to the table together. So, you know, often that might be literally together in person in Chicago, but it's also wonderful that for so long now the summit has had a kind of um, hybrid format where you might have speakers who are elsewhere in the world who are tuning in or, you know, the brewers in Carillon Brewing Company in Dayton, Ohio, who are sitting in the middle of their, their historic brewery. Um, and so I have been um, participating on the Board of Historians, which is a fabulous group of people, um, you know, alongside uh, Lisa and Christina and others. Um, and Liz asked if I might want to um, to participate in a, a slightly different way to um, join the board of directors. And that's, um, you know, I'm just, I'm honored to have been asked and just starting my time, but I think to help kind of think, um, you know, about the great places that the museum will go in the future. But um, I'm, I'm really happy to be um, part of such a, you know, a collegial group that has just kind of ever increasing reach and is, you know, helping inform and, uh, you know, inspire uh, really a, a, a worldwide audience about beer and beer history. That's amazing. And there's something that you brought up there. And I think that's really important. Um, and I'm sure Lisa can chime in on this as well, is the difference between writing for academia and academics and then changing your work and making it something that's interesting for a general audience, something that they can relate to. Can you speak a little bit about how you make that shift? Yes, definitely. And um, yeah, thank you for asking about that. So I, and when I came you know, when I came to this position, you know, again, I was completing my PhD, and that's one kind of writing uh, for one kind of audience. And, um, and through the course of the time that I've been in this job, I've been turning my dissertation into a book. And so I'm um, completing the final revisions on my manuscript now, and I'm going to submit it um, oh, soon to be hopefully in the world. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but you're right, it's a different kind of 
writing and speaking. And I frankly think in a lot of ways, it's, it's much more useful to think about writing and talking for um, different kinds of public history audiences, just in terms of the, um, the breadth of people that can be reached. I'm sorry for my cat. Um, but, you know, that, that's one of the, the aspects of this position that I most enjoy to think about the different kinds of audiences I'm speaking with. And so say, you know, in, in one setting, maybe I'm giving a talk to an undergraduate classroom. Um, in another setting, it's, it's an industry conference and there are brewers. Um, in another place, it might be um, elementary school students and I'm talking about food history mm -hmm. to them. Um, and, you know, I think um, even, even whether it's a, a public setting or an academic setting, strong writing is clear writing and strong speaking is clear speaking. And even if I'm reading an academic book, I have no interest in um, reading something where the, the writing is very opaque. And, uh, you know, I just think um, it's, it's really a barrier to clear argumentation and clear communication. And so, um, you know, I, I favor the public history setting as uh, a mode of communication. And I've actually tried to, to bring that more into my academic writing as I've been revising it. Absolutely. I think that's one of the problems with academic writing is a lot of it is incredibly opaque and unnecessarily so. Um, and it, it kind of forms a gate, you know, it gatekeeps the information away from, from a lot of people. And even, you know, as an academic, I'm, I'm with you. I don't want to read that. I'm not particularly interested in that. Um, so it creates a lot of problems, I think. And um, yeah, clear writing for a general audience, I think, should be good practice just across the board. Um, yeah. But speaking of good writing, you have written some amazing, amazing work, um, including a James Beard Award winning article, which is just huge. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you very um, much. <laughs> that was just, and, and it was truly excellent, excellent article. Um, so how can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? Sure. Well, thank you very much. I, um, yeah, it was completely um, thrilling and uh, an honor. So um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the writing process, and I, I think this relates to my comment a moment ago, I had a, um, an advisor in grad school who had no patience with this kind of, um, you know, uh, writing that, that created barriers. I mean, she um, just continually, persistently, almost annoyingly asked people to <laughs> clarify and to, um, you know, just to think about the the point of what you're trying to say, because so often writers get tangled up in in trying to write through something, and she, you know, just kind of um, being a lot clearer with um, with the argumentation. I think hopefully leads to kind of clearer writing. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, with the piece that I wrote for um, the James Beard uh, Award, so that was about um, an enslaved woman brewer um, who her name was Patsy Young and. I came across this um, source almost by accident. I was um, doing some research for my book um, and it, it, there's a, a digitized, uh, a database of digitized um, what are commonly known as runaway ads. So when mm -hmm. enslaved people in the United States, if they escaped from their enslavers, um, their enslavers would often publish ads describing these people uh, to really, to hope in the hopes of recapturing them because they were, um, you know, by, by the um, legal system at the time treated as property is very valuable property. And so um, I 
thought I would search through this database for beer after having done research related to New Orleans and um, came across this advertisement for um, a young woman who had escaped not once but twice from an enslaver in rural northeastern North Carolina. This is early 19th century. Um, she escaped for the first time in 1808, um, the second time in 1824. And um, the advertisement, as I I've said before, it caught my eye at first for its length. You know, typically these were of a of a very short length because mm -hmm. that was the cheapest length of ad that it, you know, that an enslaver could publish. But this person had clearly paid extra to run an extra long ad. And because of the length, that meant that the person who wrote this advertisement included all of these details that couldn't typically be included. So place names and dates and um references just to the region and, and the physical description of this young woman. And so I got, um, you know, I, I kind of started to wonder if it might be possible to build a project around this person because, um, uh, you know, when we talk about the early history of brewing in this country, um, many historians, very much myself included, um, we often say, well, in the early years of American history, you know, many brewers were enslaved people, especially women. And then it's kind of on to the next chapter. And, you know, there is this entire segment of Americans who, um, because they were inadequately documented in official records, it's much more difficult to locate their histories, to write their histories than others who were living at that time. Um, but, you know, I started to wonder about if I could take all of these different things that were mentioned in this ad and kind of build out around them you know, use each one as a stepping stone to, to researching this person. And so in this project and in my New Orleans book as well, I have, which, you know, includes similar time period and similar kinds of figures, free and enslaved people of color in the 19th century. Um, I've come to start to think about um, historical actors like this almost as if I am kind of, um, you know, they're the subject of my study but I think about kind of um, circling around them and, and thinking about what are the many aspects of the worlds in which they live that could be researched. So what are the kinds of questions I could ask about this young woman named Patsy Young? And I only know her name because it's listed here in the advertisement. The, the US census at the time didn't even bother to collect the names of enslaved people. And so, um, you know, you might be able to ask what was the geography like in Northern Carolina at that time, North Carolina. Um, what was the you know political climate of the region? What were the economics of that part of town? What are that part of the country? Um, you know what was brewing like at the time? And I think starting to ask those kinds of questions then points you all to to, to many different kinds of sources, whether those are um, census records related to agricultural production or to um, registration forms to the National Register of Historic Places for the. Roanoke Canal that was being uh, constructed at the time. And, you know, piece by piece, all of these little um, sources jumping from one to the next, they begin to fill in the person who is at the, you know, the subject of your study. Um, so I, I have come to find that to be um, a productive way to, to think of, to generate, a, you know, a range of research questions um, that points me to lots of different sources and, and then helps to kind of flesh in the person I'm, I'm seeking. Yeah, it was an amazing read too. It was it, for anyone who's not read it, go out and it's it's very poignant and especially because we only know so much, but it's you know it's giving you that context and it's then kind of hoping you know people can start to maybe go off and 
find out more about these people and these these you know these topics because it's so under I don't want to say under research because that's the wrong word people are doing the research but it's not necessarily widely known or or sort of um, uh, digested if you like more broadly so right absolutely so, and we'll link that in the show notes thank you thank you very much thanks um, yeah and I think also there's a what what was um, challenging but also um, in, in a good way to me too when I thought about writing the piece you know aside from researching it writing it um, you know how could you how could you write in a way that doesn't um, you know, if the only written record you have is of this runaway ad that was that was authored by um, Patsy Young's enslaver, how could you not privilege that voice and the kind right. of that narration of her life or of her story in the writing, the recounting of her history? And so, um, you know, I it came down to the level of um, you know when I was writing to catch myself if 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 he was becoming the subject of sentences, you know, I wanted mm. to make her the subject of sentences. I wanted her name to be visible more often in the article than his name, you know, kind of to that degree of, uh, of detail. I think there's a lot of ways to, um, you know, approach these kinds of projects from a, a writerly perspective as well as a research perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your point earlier about, you know, the clarity, making it simple so it's understandable is, is so important in just letting the, the story and the research sort of speak for itself, which I know can seem, it, it, it's, well, seems like a simple thing, but it's really difficult to get that, that really, you know, honed narrative there. So it's, it's an amazing piece. Thank you very much. So with that in mind, I want to know a little bit more about your book. You probably can't tell us too much, but whatever you can tell us, we'd really love to, to know just a little bit more. Sure, sure. So the book is called um, Insatiable City, Eating Food and Consuming People in New Orleans. And it investigates the, um, the food history and food culture of New Orleans from the early 19th century to the present. And um, the book is structured around places around uh, sites of food production and consumption. And over time, it looks at um, what I found to be this um, uh, very difficult um, proclivity to, to kind of um, blend food and people in realms of commodification. And, and so it, the easiest way to, to start this history is with the first chapter, which um, in the mid 19th century in New Orleans, it you know, already it had this reputation as a place to um, to go and let loose. You know, if you were a visiting businessman, if you were, you know, there with your wife visiting from New York, um, if you were traveling from Paris and New Orleans at the time um, was the um, richest city in the country. It was one of the largest cities in the country. And it became known in part for these luxury hotels with grand ballrooms and dining rooms and bar rooms. And um, in these bar rooms where people were drinking cocktails and uh, going upstairs to eat, um, there were auctions of enslaved people that were happening in these same settings. And so um, these attendees would be um, drinking juleps sweetened with cane sugar, uh, cane sugar syrup, and literally bidding on an enslaved person whom they might bring to a sugar plantation who would do the backbreaking and very violent labor of cultivating sugarcane and harvesting it. And so it was this, um, you know, mixing this attitude toward food and people that um, 
you know, this, these settings that were on, uh, on their surface places to um, enjoy if you were one of the privileged mm -hmm. travelers there, um, you know, a place to kind of feel out of time eventually. You have 20th century tourists describing certain settings as, as feeling um, like something that was a kind of fantasy land um, wrapped up in experiences of eating and drinking. But um, the, the human histories that were part of those experiences are often very difficult and um, you know, not, not often visible and um, you know, again, not, not easy to, to digest. And so, um, so the, again, the book moves from places like hotels and, um, and coffee houses to um, the waterfronts and sugarcane plantations in the years after the Civil War um, to places like restaurants in the French Quarter, the French Market, which is the central public market um, in in the uh, in the city. So it's been more than a decade in coming, but um, you know, finally getting toward uh, toward the end of the process. Oh, that that'll be great. I mean, like like you say, it's it's a, such a fascinating place, and like you say, this complex, difficult history in so many ways, and that I think when you go as a tourist or anything like even. even the, the bits of the tourism that get you into kind of the, you know, air quotes sort of dark tourism, they, they're only telling you certain stories and what's, you know, there are reasons why. And it's, I think that's going to be fascinating to unpack in a book that uses food and drink as this lens. I think that's going to be just fascinating to read. So we're, we're looking forward to that. So Thank we you. like complexity. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to ask one last question, and then um, Lisa, if you have anything you want to add. Uh, so my my last question to you is, do you have advice for future beer historians? Um, things to do, things not to do. <laughs> advice? Well, let's see. Um, I mean, I think, uh, you know, first, this is uh, not, not unexpected, but um, curiosity. And, uh, you know, if you if someone is if someone encounters a, a style or a setting, a place, you know, a, a, a tap room or a, you know, a pub or something that is enjoyable, you know, there's a history behind it and to, to learn about it and to read about it. Um, you know, I think understanding the history of places, of businesses, of processes, um, you know, those are all just um, incredible ways to uh, kind of sh sharpen your expertise. And um, most importantly, I think to, develop new questions and new kinds of uh, curiosities going forward. Um, you know, I think also, and this was what we talked about earlier, um, working with um, local historical societies or um, businesses that are, you know, seeking to preserve their history or, you know, if there are opportunities to, um, to become an intern or a volunteer, you know, on an exhibit project, anything that really offers um, experience or an opportunity to kind of get your, your hands dirty with the, with the historical work. Um, all of those are, are really great steps to, to take. Um, and, uh, and then also to, to read, of course, I mean, I think, you know, there's, it's not just the, um, the education that comes from this, you know, reading this proliferation of, of wonderful um, writing about beer history and about what's going on now in beer, but it's also the community of people, of, of writers and, uh, you know, of, of those who are really kind of um, have built such a, a wonderful and growing network who are, um, you know, asking questions and um, could point you toward different archives or different libraries. I mean, uh, you know, I've 
all the time I, I answer research inquiries from people who, um, you know, I, I'm often uh, encouraging them to get in touch with this other person or this archivist or, you know, this writer. And so, um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of possibility there. And I think a lot of wonderful enthusiasm. Um, and I, I mean, there's no doubt the future of beer history is something that's just going to be even better than it is now and, and, uh, and has been in the past. Awesome. Lisa, do you have anything, any more uh, questions, I, anything I, to add? I, I could geek out forever on some of the sort yeah. of minutiae of collecting and cataloging and things like that, but that's, that, that's very, um, very specific. But um, I, I guess my, my one other question is, I feel like we had kind of a, a wave, if you like, of sort of popular, I'm, I'm you know, saying specifically sort of popular beer history books, maybe about 10 years ago, thinking about the US ones, I feel like maybe we're due kind of a next wave. I just wonder if you've seen maybe the the work that people are doing to get those books out, because obviously these take a long time to do. Just curious if you if you feel like they're coming. Right, right. No, I, I agree with that. And um, so I, this is not fully in the realm of, of uh, <laughs> popular, but I'm very much looking forward to, um, to Jennifer Jordan's forthcoming mm -hmm, book yeah. um, about the environmental history of hop growing in Wisconsin. I think it's going to be a, a fantastic book. I mean, I, in general, I, I'm very interested in the, the, agricultural history of brewing and, and the production that goes in, you know, I'm trained, of course, as a social and cultural historian. And so always I'm interested in the, you know, the social history of, uh, of the labor force and, you know, various realms of the beer industry. And so I, I hope that there are future projects on that. I'm sure there are. Um, and, uh, you know, once I get through this New Orleans book, I, mm -hmm. I have uh, aspirations toward thinking about um, a book on uh, on beer history from the lens of material culture and you know mm -hmm. as a museum professional I think that's you know something that uh, I might be able to contribute to the conversation um, you know that might be complementary to other things that are going on and so, um, so that's in the back of my head too. Fabulous. Yeah. So hopefully we'll see a lot of new books coming out in the next mm -hmm. couple of years. Fingers crossed. And I know, yeah. I know at least a few from, you know, people on this podcast are yeah. coming. So. <clears throat> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really excited for your book, Teresa, and I cannot wait for Jennifer's book as well. I just think that there's in the next couple of years, there's going to be some really, really amazing books about U.S. beer history coming out and I cannot wait to get them and read all of the things so you must come back on when it's out so we can talk all about it thank you I love that so thank you so much for coming on um Lisa do you have any final questions or no no I mean like I said I could go on but I know everyone's busy we've got stuff to do but this is this is amazing <laughs> we really appreciate you coming on because it's you know it's a conversation that like Christina said we could just keep on going so maybe you know phase or uh you know the, the sequel Yes, return. we must convince you to come back. Absolutely. This I has know. been absolutely wonderful. And we really appreciate you taking the time to come out today. And we are big fans here at the podcast. So this has been really cool to, to talk to you in person about all the things that you do. Thank so you. with that, I'm going to wrap up the episode for today. So thank you so much to all our listeners for joining us. Um, we really appreciate you and you can find us on our socials, as I said, at Beer Ladies Podcast. And if you really loved what you heard today, you can always buy us a coffee. So thank you so much to everyone for listening. And thank you again to Teresa for joining us. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.